Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, sh you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves for the presence, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing, God, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so we've been in Genesis 1, 2. We're finishing up Genesis 3 this morning. Um, something that we that I mentioned during week one was that the awesome part about Genesis is that we get to see God revealing himself. 
that, that Genesis, in Genesis 1, we see his creativity, we see his power. Last week, we saw his provision. The last two weeks, really, we've seen God's provision for his creation. We've seen how he, he gave the, the land, he gave them food, he gave them a spouse, he gave, he gave all that is needed. And then last week, we talked specifically about that, that in, in sin, that man rejects this provision of God. That we reject God as being enough. And this week, kind of, last week we just looked at the first seven verses of Genesis 3. And this week we're going to kind of look at the, the whole chapter and see that, that in sin, in, as we reject God's provision, that the whole world is affected. It's not just an isolated event that we see in Genesis 3, but that the entire world is affected by sin. And I've mentioned this, I think, all three, three weeks now, that Genesis 3 is often seen as this God's plan going wrong. We see this as man fooling God, or that now God's got to do something different because of what man has done. And I, want to, I hope by the end of today that we'll see that this is not at all the case. That this chapter right here in Genesis 3 is where we see God's mercy, His grace, His compassion, really being known. That we see another aspect of God's character as he is going to reveal it. So I said last week, I think, that we're really prone to look past a lot of these verses because many who maybe have grown up in the church or are familiar with Bible stories, that we take this for granted. We skim through this because we're familiar with them. But I want to slow down just for a minute. And we talked last week a lot about sin. This week I want to look at it a little bit differently. Because last week we saw that sin is this rejection of God's provision, of rejecting God as enough. But this week I want to see like the foolishness of sin, the, the blinding foolishness of sin. Just go ahead and start in verse 8, where um, we ended last week. We're going to pick up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Think about what we've described God as. The creator of the universe, the all-knowing God, who spoke the world into motion, who said, let there be light, and there was light. That spoke life into creation. So we've described God as a big God, powerful God, all-knowing creator. And man and woman try to hide in the midst of the trees. And it's really easy to, to skip past the foolishness of this, to skip past and realize that this was dumb, that they would think that they could hide from God. I really, I, I picture the toddler that plays hide-and-seek. It's like, you can't see me. I can't see you, therefore you can't see me. I, I, I googled toddler and hide-and-seek, and I was going to put a picture, but there was too many to choose from. Um, like the, the kid that's lying in the middle of the floor with a blanket over their face because they can't see you, or the kid that's hiding behind the blinds where their shoulders up are hidden, but their whole body's behind the blinds. Like, it's easy to not read that same thing here because if we were to play hide-and-seek, like that's what people our age do, um, but like... As we would do that, if any of us hid that way, we'd say, that's dumb. That's foolish. But that's essentially what they do. And 
I don't want to make light of this, but it's easy for us to look back at this and say, wow, that is foolish. Wow, like, why would they do that? But I think that, that sin is blinding. I think that, that sin, as we see it, it's blinding. We don't even realize the foolishness of it in the moment. Because in the moment, we're, we're blinded to say, how dumb is it that I thought it'd be easier to say that harsh word to a spouse or to a friend or to a coworker? We don't even realize it until later. It's easy to look back and see the foolishness. But in the moment, we're so blind to the stupidity of sin. And I think there's so many things that, that don't make sense. There's so many things that just don't make sense. There's been a lot said of, as it should, of the, the ruling in New York um, with abortion being legalized. Um, and there's been a lot made of that. And it's just the world is so blinded of the foolishness. And like, I've heard this story that in, in many states, someone can be driving on their way to have an illegal abortion, can be driving to have an abortion, and get hit by a car on the way there, and the person who hit them is convicted of manslaughter. But yet, that woman was going to legally kill that same baby. It's just, it's blinding. It's foolish. It's like, that does not make sense. And yet the world, culture in general, is like, makes sense. It's blinding. It's blinding. Sin is blinding. Skip down to verse 11. We're going to come back to this same thought. Skip down to verse 11. So God said, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, it's so foolish. Like, the, the, the blame game starts. Like, oh, it wasn't me. Both man and woman reject the responsibility for what they did. It's easy to miss the gravity of what the man said, too. He didn't just say, the woman, he said, the woman that you gave me. The woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. The same woman that we said was provision from God. The same person that Adam had broken out in song about. Man, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And yet now, sinfully, is saying, no, it's her fault. This is her fault. He rejects his own responsibility. Eve does the same thing. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They reject the, they reject the responsibility. And again, it's this blinding, this sin, like we don't even see it. Like that was the first response. And I think we all are prone to reject our own responsibility in sin. Because it affects so much. Like we, we want to remove the responsibility. It wasn't our fault. It was that person who cut us off in traffic. They caused that gesture. They caused that word. Or maybe it was the, 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 the co-worker's attitude. It was their fault that we lashed out at them. It was their fault that we were impatient. It was their fault. But 
Maybe it was, it's their fault for that person. They should have been dressed more modestly. It was their fault I lusted. We so quickly reject the responsibility for our sin. Even if it's not as blatant, maybe, as we see here in Genesis 3. But we also see that sin impacts others. Sin impacts others. We saw between Adam and Eve, like they start blaming others. Adam blames Eve. And I think that if we look at the sin of our own lives, we'll see that sin impacts others. Sin impacts others. Impacts friends, it impacts family, it impacts coworkers, spouses, children. No matter what it is. Maybe it's something blatant, super blatant. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's theft. These kind of things, the blatant things, obviously they affect other people. But even the not so blatant ways, maybe we're selfish with our time. And that affects our relationships, that affects our kids, that affects our spouse. Again, sin is blinding. We, we, we just miss the reality of it. And it's easy, like I, said, I said this a minute ago, it's easy to look at this and say, man, Adam and Eve were foolish. Man, what were they thinking trying to hide from God? What were they thinking, blaming someone else? It was obviously them who ate of the fruit. But I think that you and I are the same way. So often act as if God is not aware. Again, this is not just a scare tactic that says, God sees everything you do. But I think we really quickly don't think about that that we don't realize that though our sin might be hidden from the rest of the world, that God knows. That God knows. Like, do we, do we realize that on a minute-by-minute minute basis? Like, how foolish are we to think that he doesn't? This, it reminds me of a story I heard back in, I don't, it was somewhere in high school. I'm just going to, going to read it. I was able to go find it again. Um, because it's a pretty heavy morning and a lot of stuff we're talking about. So I wanted to maybe do something a little bit lighter for a second. But it reminded me of this story. Because God is watching. It says, Late one night, a burglar broke into a house he thought was empty. He tiptoed through the living room, but suddenly froze in his tracks when he heard a loud voice say, God is watching you. Silence returned to the house, so the burglar crept forward again. God is watching you, the voice boomed. The burglar stopped dead in his tracks again. He was frightened. Frantically, he looked around the room. In a small corner, he spotted a birdcage, and in the cage was a parrot. He asked the parrot, Was that you who said God was watching me? Yes, said the parrot. The burglar breathed a sigh of relief and asked the parrot, What's your name? Clarence, said the bird. Well, that's a dumb name for a parrot, sneered the burglar. What idiot named you Clarence? The parrot replied, the same idiot who named their Rottweiler God. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Clicking, clicking, slowly. I always told myself I was never going to be the guy who tries to tell a joke in a sermon. 
so I wanted to read it instead. Um, light, light moment, light moment. But like, it sounds stupid, it sounds dumb. But like, do we realize that nothing is hidden from the sight of God? Like nothing. We look at Genesis 3 and think that's foolish of Adam and Eve. But I think that, I know I, every day as we try to downplay, as I try to downplay the importance of my sin or the effect of my sin, do very similar things. So as we look at Genesis 3, it's really easy to read this as like just uh, describing a, a past event, describing something that happened. It's easy to notice, I've kind of said this a couple times, it's easy to notice the sins of others. It's easy to look at this and notice the sins of Adam and Eve. And I think today, it's really easy to notice the sins of others around us. We're a lot quicker to notice that than we are to see our own sin. Have you ever noticed that about yourself, that you're very quick to notice the sins in other people? Whatever it is, from the, from the, quote, smallest to the most obvious, that we're very quick to notice others. But maybe not as quick to notice our own sin. We see Adam and Eve. We see, like, obvious sin, noticeable. Like, we see the, the child rapist or the sex trafficker or the murderer and we're so quick to see those things and say, sinner! But we don't see our own. I'm going to ruin part of my, my ending, but God has sends his only son to die on a cross, a gruesome death on a cross, not just because of the murderer, not just because of the sex trafficker, not because of the rapist, but he did that for your sin for my sin. Hear the gravity of that. It's not just the sins that we see in others. Obvious or not. But it's ours. The foolishness of sin. The foolishness of sin. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? During my prep this week, as I, I kept coming back to this verse and asking, like, what, what is the purpose of this question? What, what is the purpose of God saying, where are you? Obviously, God knows where Adam is. Like we said, like, ever-present God, all-knowing God, creator of the universe. It's not that he doesn't know where Adam is. What is the purpose of this? And I think what we see here in just God coming to Adam with a question is we see this first example of the mercy of God. This first display of mercy. Because we know that God would have been completely just to, as soon as they bit the fruit, as soon as they decided in their heart to bite the fruit, God would have been justified, completely just to wipe them out. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Like, that's what their sin deserved. But you hear the, like the, the gentle mercy of God just in saying, Adam, where are you? 
coming to Adam. Where are you? I think it's his first display of mercy, where man not getting what he had deserved. But in this question, we also see the gravity of sin, the, the consequences of sin. We're going to get to the specific consequences in a minute in verse 14 through 19, where there's very specific consequences. But there's the consequence here, this separation from God. Because man had dwelt in the presence in the garden, that there was communion, there was relationship with God. But now something is broken. Now man is hiding himself. Now God is saying, where are you? The relationship between man and God has changed. It's changed. It's, there's broken. There's brokenness. There's not communion anymore. But in the same question, in answering that same question, we see the provision of God. We're going to see the provision of God. I was going to talk a lot more about this. Um, but as we move into looking at these specific consequences of sin in 14 through 19, there's very specific consequences. God talks to the serpent. He talks to man. He talks to woman. But like just the, just the consequences of sin on the world itself. Rose posted a portion of this on, the, on Realm this week of, from Romans 8. It's like the whole world is groaning. The whole world has been affected by sin. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but the creation has been groaning together. Like the, the general effects of sin can be seen everywhere. Can be seen everywhere. Just watch the news. See the natural disaster. See all sorts of different things that go on in the world. The world itself is broken. It's groaning to be remade. But we also see that there are very specific consequences of sin. Very specific ones. And what I want to do is I want to look through these backwards. So we see God talk to the serpent. He talks to man. He talks to woman. But let's look at the last one first, which is God's interaction with man. In verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So like the biggest thing you see here is that he says the ground is cursed because of you. That which was so central to man's creation, placed in the garden, it says he was placed in the garden to work it and keep it. That's in verse, chapter 2, verse 15. I don't think I put it in there. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, God, He created him and put, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And that, was so, that which was so central to his creation is now 
broken. It says that thorns and thistles, the weeds, will now sprout up. The ground itself is like fighting back against man because of sin. I mean, notice that he was, they're still commanded to work it. Even in verse 23, at the end of this chapter, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. It's like work is still commanded. Work is now affected by sin. It's still commanded to work it and keep it. Like it's still a way that we image our Creator. It's still the way that we display the glory of God in the world by the way that we work. We've been created to work. But it, the effect of sin on work, specifically for men, I think has been drastically impacted. I see this, and some of, some of this that I'm going to say, it's, it's true of both genders. But I think we see it just exaggerated in, in males, and I think its <laughs> root is here. We see that, like, the things of the world, whether it's sports or video games or, or any other type of entertainment, so chases after man to pull him in, to, to, to keep him away from this work. I read a statistic, I don't know, I didn't read it recently, but it talked like the average age of multiple things that people would culturally say is like moving into to, to manhood whether it's being married or working full-time or, or taking responsibility for all these things in life. I'm not trying to define what that is. But like the average age has gotten later and later and later and later and later and later and later. Not taking the responsibility, not stepping into the workforce, not doing what we were created to do. And again, some of that can absolutely apply to women being distracted and, and from what we were called to do, from entertainment or sports or video games. or It can be anything. But sin is so deeply impacted, so deeply impacted our, our, our culture, our lives, our roles. We're going to come back to man in just a second. But look at verse 16, interaction with the woman. He said, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Random, but I've always thought it was your desire shall be for your husband. It's interesting that that ESV says desire shall be for your husband. Same thing, same thing. But what we see here is that also, central to woman's creation, we see the effects of sin. When I, as I've heard this taught in the past, um, and even as I've talked briefly about this in a previous sermon, probably a year or so ago, we saw that it says, your pain in childbearing. It talks about the physical pain in birthing a child. Like, it's always focused on that. But as I really dug into this more this week, I don't think that's what it, that is constrained to. I don't think it's talking about the pain of physically birthing a child. I'm not saying that's not true. Don't, don't, don't come beat me up if you've experienced that. I think that absolutely is included. I'm like afraid to look up right now. Uh, obviously, yes. 
but the emotional pain, the psychological pain, the, the pain of the whole process. Whether it's this, the stress and anxiety of whether your child is going to be healthy. Maybe it's the feeling of helplessness and the struggle of infertility. Maybe it's the heartbreak of miscarriage. It's heavy. It's, it's hard. It's, it's real. But like this pain in childbearing is so much more than just the physical pain of birthing a child. But it's also seen in the relationship with her husband. The relationship with man. This desire shall be... Can you go back to that verse just for a second? Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Like, this is not a good desire. It's not talking about a sexual desire. It's not talking about any kind of good desire. It's like, it's your desire to rule over your husband. We haven't gotten too much into to, to gender roles a whole lot um, in the last couple of weeks. We see that, that man, woman created... Equal in value, equal in importance, equal in many, many things, but with different roles. They got us specifically designed man and woman differently. And now God says, because of sin, you're going to want to step out, out of bounds with that. We're going to want, women are going to want to rule over their husband. And I, th- and I think we, we see this. I think many women would say, yes, I've seen that struggle. I've seen that desire to, to rule, to step, on, to step outside of bounds with, with how God has designed the home. But sin, the overarching point of all this, like sin is impacting everything. It's impacting the family. It's impacting relationships. It's impacting work. It's impacting everything. I know it hasn't been super uplifting and say, yay, this is joyous and happy. But I think that we need to feel the weight of this, feel the heaviness of sin and its impact, if we're going to fully understand the hope that is also in these verses. Look, at, look back at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because, of, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and, sh- and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." I'm not going to talk a ton about verse 14 there. Um, did anybody else start wondering like, what the serpent looked like before he was on his belly? Like the legs, like what, what's going on here? People have done like whole studies on this, and it, it's kind of not worth speculating about. Um, but look at verse 15. That's where I want to focus on. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We've mentioned this 
SCRC multiple times. Like we've talked to us a lot about that, that, that fancy word that we use for this verse, this proto-evangelium, this first declaration of the gospel. The first declaration of the gospel in Scripture. Because God says, the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. It's going to come with a cost that the, the heel of the offspring of woman is going to be bruised, but that he will bruise the head of the serpent. Just to be really clear, in case anyone missed this, like this is so clearly Jesus. So clearly Jesus. So clearly Jesus. Like this is divine, like foreshadowing of the coming Christ. We've seen the last couple weeks that, that in sin they reject the provision of God. They, they reject this provision. They chase after the, the futility of wisdom and knowledge. They've rejected the Creator. And we see that in this world, Satan is the, the king of liars, of deception and sin. We see his impact on the world. We see it here. We see it out there. We see it impacting every one of us. And 1 John 3 says that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And we really do see the reality of this. But here we also see in verse 15 that God says there is one coming, a seed of the woman, one who would be born of woman, and he would come and he would be bruised. He would be afflicted. He would open not his mouth. Isaiah says he would be like a sheep led to the slaughter, one who would be pierced, one who would bear the sins of many, one who would be bruised, but who would destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, right after it says that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. It says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. in one of the, like, the hardest, weightiest chapters in Scripture, we see this abundant mercy and grace and provision. Like I said, like, God would have been completely just, completely right to wipe man from the face of the earth right then and say, I'm done with you. He would have been just to do that. That's what sin deserved. But the Almighty God, the same God, the big God that created the world, that spoke everything into motion, that God says that He was going to overcome sin through Jesus. There was hope right here, in the midst of this, in the midst of this. So as we struggle, as we struggle under the weight of sins. We struggle in sin. We struggle with sins. We see this in the broken world. As we see this in the workplace, as we see this in our homes and our relationships, as you see this in the news of natural disasters or in the, the celebration of the murdering of babies, as we see this in the world, know that, that God has said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix what is broken. And Jesus would come hundreds of years after this promise, and do just that. 
Like this, this Jesus, we get to see in Scripture. As, as I prayed this morning, it was just the, the beautiful provision that we have of Scripture, that we get to see Jesus, we get to see Genesis, we get to see Revelation, everything in between. But a Savior that we get to experience, we get to know. There is hope. Almost done. But there is something else so huge here. Because I said, like, this is often seen as this awful chapter. This chapter where God's plan is, 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 is messed up. Where God had this good plan. Genesis 1, 2, there was this great plan. And then mankind in Genesis 3 messed it up. That God had to somehow alter his plans. Okay, well, well now I'm going to send Jesus because you messed up plan A. What we're going to see is that's not the case. This might surprise some of you, but flip to Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. Um, we go there, I feel like, every Sunday, but it's just so good. So good. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So to put this in perspective, just think as we read these verses. Think Genesis 3. That mankind, as they sin, God says, okay, I'm going to send this offspring of Eve to, to, to strike the head of Satan. He's going to defeat him. Now listen to these verses. This is Ephesians 1. 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is Paul writing inspired, inerrant, perfect word of God. He says, before the foundation of the world, God shows us, listen, I'm going to help you with some pronouns here. He, being God, chose us, people to be saved, in him, Jesus. God chose people to be saved in Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, Let me tell you what I see here. <laughs> that God's purpose, His will, all things that He's working for the glory of His grace, to the praise of His glory, it's always been, that perfect will has always been to reveal His love through Jesus Christ. Every single time. That's always been the plan, to reveal His love through Jesus like we keep saying, what, what does all this mean? How is all of this pointing towards Jesus? Because God's plan has always been to reveal his love through Jesus Christ. Like this hurts the brain sometimes. It's like, wait, like before the foundation of the world, this is before Genesis 3. 
And you're saying that God decided, declared that he was going to display his love through Jesus before sin? Yes. His desire has always been to reveal his love and mercy through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that all of God's plan, all of it, the fall, election, redemption, salvation, all of it serves the, serves the same purpose, glorifying God. All of it. All of it. Like, we're so quick to ask questions of this, selfish questions that we struggle with. Like, what, what does that mean? How can God be sovereign in, a, in an evil world, in a world that is broken with sin? How can God be sovereign over that? And I want to challenge us to look at this as we read. I'm going to read a quote from J.I. Packer. As, as we struggle to fully understand this, how can God, how? J.I. Packer says, people treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy, but in Scripture is a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. Like, as we ponder this amazing work that God would save sinners through his Son, that he would display his love through Jesus, as we think of what that means, that should lead us to worship. Because we worship a God that is working all things to the glory of his name. We worship a God who created all that is, all that we see, we worship a God who richly provided for man and for woman. We worship a God who did not retreat when man sinned. We worship a God who, who speaks life and love into tragedy and sin and shame. We worship a God who instead of leaving us in that sin and shame, giving us the debt that we deserved. We worship a God that displayed his love through giving his only son. We worship a God who gave his son in our, our place that required that. We worship a God who is not distant when the hurts of this world rain down upon us. We worship a God who doesn't give up when we struggle with sin. As Tanner prayed earlier, we worship a God who doesn't give up on the addict struggling with addiction. We, get, we worship a God who is near to the couple struggling with infertility. We worship a God who decided before the foundation of the world to make his love most seen in Jesus. We get Jesus. Even when Genesis 3, that reality, that sin that it runs rampant, that is in our, so clings to us, so, that is so tempts us as we run back to it time and time again. We get Jesus. We get Jesus. Where there's full forgiveness and life. There is life. Like we get to worship because of what he has done. Like it's all Jesus. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. We're going to continue to see it as Tanner picks up next week in Genesis 4. 
It's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus. So as we look at Genesis 3, as we feel the weight of that, as we feel the weight of Adam and Eve's sin, as we feel the weight of our own sin, knowing that each one of us has rejected that provision, as we feel that, like, we can rejoice. We can rejoice only because of Jesus. So as we respond, I want us to feel that weight, feel that heaviness, but also know that only through Jesus can we stand and sing and sing praises to Jesus. Sing praises. It's all for him. It's all for him. So I don't know exactly where you're at. I don't know exactly the specific sins that you struggle with, that that Scripture says that Jesus understands that no temptation has overcome you that is not common. That Jesus knows. He's able to sympathize because he has been tempted in every way that we have. It's Hebrews. He's been tempted in every way that we have. So won't you run to him? Go to Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation, for life. We get to stand and sing. We get to stop and pray. We get to be the church. We can speak encouraging words to one another because of what Jesus has done. We can cry together because of what Jesus has done and point one another and remind one another what Jesus has done. I'm going to keep saying it. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Don't forget that. Let's pray.